Yeah, uh, yeah, I guess the bigger picture stuff at the end. Um, so the main question the series is trying to answer is why should people, but primarily consumers, like why should they care about regenerative agriculture? You know, why? And I'm being a little facetious when I say this, but like, why can't people just like go about their business, buy their food, and not give much thought about the management practices that produce that food? That's a big question. Yeah, that's what I do to people. <laughs> I'm Derek Leahy, host of the Rural Roots to Climate Solutions podcast. Usually our podcast covers the on-farm and on-ranch climate solutions that are good for agriculture, good for the climate, and a great fit for Alberta. But in this series, the Stories of Regeneration series, we're going a bit bigger. Yeah, I don't know. I guess, yeah, it's just, I think it all comes down to the future and not living for just today. Okay. And preserving i mean soil is a resource that is just so important to everything you know when you think of what you grow in soil to produce whether it's food for humans or animals or you know it's just it's so important so it we need to take care of that resource mm. so for consumers i guess it's just i think it's important to know where your food is coming from and I encourage consumers, I think you just need to ask why. Mm. You know, why, why would you grow food like that? Why does it make a difference? How does that impact me as a consumer? In the growing season of 2023, we traveled across Canada to speak with agriculture producers who, by using an agriculture system called regenerative agriculture, are helping to address the social and environmental crises we face as a society and they're producing healthy and delicious food at the same time. Consumers vote with their dollars, right? And if they want more of this, you just vote that way. I mean, that it's, I think it really is that simple. If, if, if they truly care and they truly want change, you, your money goes and you make time for what's important. I think that's just the rule of life. And I think the last three or four years, People have become more aware of food and what to eat and the outcomes of that. And it, there's, I think there's been almost what I would say be a paradigm shift in, in consumer purchasing habits. And that couple that with, you know, the availability of technology and knowledge transfer. And I think being a regenerative farmer, what we are, like, and being, you know, integrated to the point that we are, that we're in a really good spot. Roots to Climate Solutions in partnership with Regeneration Canada presents Stories of Regeneration, a podcast series exploring why we as a society need to get behind regenerative agriculture, a system of agriculture that's determined to keep farmers and ranchers farming and ranching, and also a system that's determined to leave the land and ecosystems better off than when we found them. Part two, Loyal to the Soil, with Tannis and Derek Axton of Axton Farms in Minton, Saskatchewan, July 26, 2023. Okay. Well, I'm Tannis Axton. I live at Minton, Saskatchewan. Our farm is just a mile north of the town. And yeah, I'm a grain farmer. Um, we've been farming together since 2002, and we grow all types of small grains. My name is Derek Axton, and 
I live on our family farm just north of Mitten, Saskatchewan. And uh, yeah, I guess we're, uh, we're food producers. My dad also had grown up on a farm, but the farm that he created for us, he was first generation on. So I have an older brother, so he naturally was going to take over the farm. So I never really thought farming would ever be an option for me. Went on and became a school teacher, a high school biology teacher. And then, yeah, ended up meeting Derek again. I'd known him all my life, but started dating, got married, and moved back to the farm here and quit teaching to become a farmer. Huh. I guess you found a new way to get into or get back into biology when you think Yeah, it, it yeah. took a few years, yeah. but down the road, yeah, it all came, kind of came full circle because, you know, all the education I had and the studying biology, as silly as it seems, never thought of the connection between biology and farming. Right, right. So once I actually got to get a microscope to help with on the farm, yeah, it all kind of came full circle. So makes it fun. Derek is a fourth generation agriculture producer who grew up on a mixed farm and went off to college for agriculture. The plan after college was actually to expand the cattle side of the family farming operation, which is interesting since the Axons don't have cattle anymore. They do still find ways to integrate livestock into their system. Also, and like, let's just get this one out of the way right now. When Tannis says Derek, especially in a marital context, she isn't talking about me. She's talking about her husband, Derek Axton. And when I talk about Derek, I'm not talking about myself in the third person. I haven't hit that level of podcast hosting delirium yet. Yet. So, I mean, I guess currently, like, we're a, we're a grain farm, but we like to think of ourselves as food producers. And I, I think there is a difference. Okay. Um, we grow, all the products that we grow wind up as a food product of one form or another. Some we value add, some we don't. But I guess what makes us unique is that we built um, a food grade processing facility on our farm, which I guess for people that maybe aren't familiar, it's it's just a it's just a building full of machinery that allows us to like it's a mechanical cleaning. It's not a water process by any means. I mean, I think it's a bit of a misnomer that there's you know we're out there with scrub brushes, but um, we. Um, yeah, so it's this it's this building full of mechanical machinery that like and there's a whole bunch of machinery and they all have different jobs. But basically we're taking all the foreign material out, making sure that there's no soil stuck to the grain and there's no you know, no rocks, no glass, no dust, you know, so it's just pure seeds. And then from that point, from the pure seeds, then we can, you know, then we can make flour. Right. Um, or sell that grain to other people who maybe press oil or do some other process to make food ingredients. You know, some of, some of the, our grain is consumed whole as well, um, but that's basically what we do. Okay. Um, a lot of our grains are grown as intercrops, so it's something we've been doing, I guess, for over 10 years, where we grow different types of grains together. They're seeded at the same time, they're managed together, and then they're harvested together, and then we separate them afterwards. And they go into their own, you know, unique end use. Cool. A lot of what we do with intercrops are legume base, uh, which helps us reduce our fertility. Obviously, that was kind of the, that was really the introduction for us to reducing inputs was intercrop, legume base intercrops. Okay. So, we, you know, things like peas and mustard and flax and chickpeas, lentils and flax. Those ones are important ones for us. Definitely. Now we're definitely going to deep dive into those practices too a little later on. 
Um, anything else to add about what's going on at the farm? Like you've covered most of the enterprises, yeah. I feel. But, yeah. I think you covered it. Yeah. As far as. Uh, any future plans for the farm that you could share for, with us? And they don't have to be based on reality either. You, <laughs> you could shoot high if you want. Well, I feel like we've been working towards a lot. Okay. Right? With, you know, in the last five years, we've built the seed cleaning plant. We've just got the flour mill going. So we're super excited about the products we have now. So now we're more into the marketing and actually finally being able to connect with people who are excited about our products. So I think that's kind of where we're, we're headed next. Okay. Any other big dreams out there you're willing to share? Well, if we're talking in terms of not necessarily reality. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, my favorite space to be in. <laughs> there's, I mean, there's lots of things we'd like to do. I mean, there's, there's lots of limits, but I mean, Obviously, I, I personally would like to, you know, explore the next step of, you know, adding value to the flower and whatever that looks like, you know. We have a bit of a joke that my great-grandfather, when he left England, was running from gambling debts. He was a baker running from gambling <laughs> debts. He got put on the boat with his family. Okay. So, you never know. It could be full circle. Now, if you're curious, it isn't normal for a grain farmer to have a seed cleaning plant on site or own a mill. Those are the types of things that agriculture producers tend to outsource. Axton Farms was actually the third farm in a row that we interviewed for the series that was in the value-added business in addition to producing food. We visited Lightfoot and Wolfville Farms in Nova Scotia, and they grow grapes, and they use those grapes to make wine. We also visited Femme Terre Patage in Rogersville, New Brunswick, probably the most diverse farm in the series. And they make hot sauces out of whatever the bumper crop was that year with their veggie production. Uh, I got some of that hot sauce. I believe it was made from squash. It was delicious. So this is where the wheels started turning in my head. The fact that three very different farms who are all applying regenerative agriculture principles were also all generating value-added products locally got me wondering if perhaps one of the benefits of accelerating adoption rates of regenerative agriculture across the Canadian agriculture sector will be it will create new economic opportunities for rural communities. Somebody has to make that flour, the wines, and the hot sauces, and the vast majority of agriculture producers aren't going to have time for that kind of stuff. A lot of them sadly already have off-farm jobs in order to subsidize their farming habits. You may have also noticed that Derek referenced intercropping when he explained how they planted and harvested their crops. If you remember from part one of the Stories of Regeneration series, Ryan Boyd of South Glanton Farms in Manitoba also used that regenerative agriculture practice. Intercropping has had a pretty big impact on Axton Farms. And by the way, when Derek talks about visiting Gabe in this next segment, he means visiting Gabe Brown, a very well-known regenerative agriculture producer in North Dakota. Well, what happened was basically is I, when I met Gabe and we went to his farm, you know, and he was gracious to give us lots of time on his farm and showed us what he was doing and showed us his neighbors. I mean, you know, anyone that's seen Kiss the Ground has seen a difference and you know, and really the difference, you know, that separated those guys, other than the gravel road, is was management, okay. right? So I, you know, I tried to, you know, look at this somewhat holistic, holistically, which was pretty, for me, 13 years ago was a leap. But 
Um, the big difference I thought in his system, other than the livestock, which we, we didn't do and I couldn't see myself going there at the time, was was his diversity was intense. Yeah. And ours wasn't. You know, we we actually we had made intentional movements towards less diversity on our farm in the name of profitability, according to our accountants. And efficiency, and right? Efficiency. Get in, do what you need to do, just seed what's going to make money, cash in, get out. <laughs> and, you know, in, a, in, in certain places and for certain people that works, but it just wasn't, it had kind of lost its, what's the word, I mean it, there was nothing exciting about that. It was, you know, it was, you do the same thing next year on three different fields and the next year rotate and rinse and repeat. And <laughs> that isn't me at all. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's tennis <laughs> So, you know, when Gabe kind of showed us and we're like, this diversity thing, this is, I like this. And we had started, you know, by this time already, we were growing quite a few more crops. But I didn't. It never even crossed my mind until we. Uh, I saw that and or driving home and trying to figure out ways. And then there were some guys I know, like, um, like, is a is a farmer by North of Madison Hat. His name's Andy Kirschman. And then there's like Colin oh, Lee yeah. Rosengren. Yeah, I know Andy. Andy Kirschman wrote an article for our Farmers Blog way back when we got the Farmers Blog started in 2019. The Rural Rooster Climate Solutions Farmers Blog highlights the agriculture producers in Alberta who are putting farm solutions that are also climate solutions into action. He wrote about intercropping. That's why I got so excited there. You know, so those guys had been doing this before me. And then I come home and I talk to dad. My dad really wasn't, you know, after mom got sick, dad really wasn't really involved a lot, like with day-to-day operation decisions. But he was still interested and still helped and all of those things, right? He still wanted to know what was going on. but. So I talked to him a little bit about this intercropping and he's like, well, you know, this friend of mine from, from Foam Lake, Saskatchewan is Bill Cooper. I'm pretty sure they did that back in the early 80s when they were trying to grow peas and they did peas in canola back in the day because the peas wouldn't stand up. Ah. You know, and, and I mean, really, once you start looking at history, this is this is not a new idea. Interesting. Right? Uh. But um, for us, it was originally just about adding diversity. Okay. And then adding diversity turned into adding value, right? So we were like, well, we we tried some really basic things and that turned into like, well, let's grow some of these higher value crops that are more challenging as a monocrop, but better as an intercrop. And that's basically what it led to. And uh, we, you know, sort of exchanged ideas with other farmers. And there's a research farm at Redverse, Saskatchewan that's um, Southeast Research Farm that Lana Shaw is the, the manager of. And we went out there in like 14 or 13 and looked at, she had chickpeas and flax because we just, chickpeas were kind of faux pas in this part of the world because we had so much trouble with disease in the early 2000s with them, everybody just quit growing. Oh, really? Okay. And she went to Redverse, it has 50% more rain than us and she's growing them with intercrop with flax and in a high rainfall zone. And I was like, well, if she can grow them, we can grow them. <laughs> Most people would do a trial. Derek put in a thousand acres. I mean, if you got a thousand acres to spare like that. <laughs> Luckily, it was successful. Well, <laughs> I, I do think we did have a lot of luck because we had we did a lot of those things where it's like, if we're doing it, we're doing it. And I think, honestly, a lot of the reason that we had success, well, not that we had success, but the reason we kept doing it is we did have success in those early years. Okay. But yeah, there's a lot of 
benefits. Like one with is the disease reduction. Okay. Um, another one is it allows us to grow. You know, for instance, winter peas. We wouldn't normally they grow and they <laughs> fall over. Okay. And they're extremely hard to harvest, so we seed them with mustard. So they trellis up the mustard, which makes them a lot easier to okay. combine. Okay. So, and it's amazing how when you get the two crops together, they seem to work together. Um, there's research that shows that they share nutrients. So it also has allowed us, that's kind of where we started to really step back our synthetic fertilizer. Okay. Because we, we found that without, even without using fertilizer, they were still doing really well and yielding well. And I think they were sharing nutrients or providing nutrients for each other. Okay. Does the soil biology also benefit from that diversity of plants? Oh yeah, like if you draw, is it a Venn diagram, right? Yeah. Like if you think about, right, if, if you think about the microbial community in the peas and the microbial community in the mustard, right, right, and then, you know, there's, there, it's a, there's a, you know, it's a complete, you know, new circle in the Venn diagram. <laughs> it really isn't a circle. <laughs> it's whatever shape that is. Yeah, I know what you mean. Inside of a Venn diagram, an overlap. It's not but, a square. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, you know, when, when those communities overlap, it's, it's just, I mean, I've heard all sorts of different ideas of what the increase biologically is, but it's significant. Okay. Yeah, and, you know, that, that was the whole idea for us was when, I, when we looked at these farms and these, you know, like Dakota Lakes or, or Gabe's or David Brands where these guys had been incorporating diversity is they had accelerated the improvement of their soil over anybody else we had saw. Okay. And that's, you know, basically what drove us to, to do it. And the other benefits kind of followed, really. Mm. There's challenges with intercropping, obviously. I mean, there's logistics and there's separating and marketing. and But those things all kind of looked after themselves, you know, after 10 years or so. Right. Um, and it's honestly, that's what kind of led us into reducing fertilizer significantly. That was our, that was our whatever water wings in the paddling pool of low input and um, which led us into seed separating, which led us into seed production, which led us into food production and flour milling. So it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> Intercropping is quite the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, yeah, I think we're, and we're still always kind of fascinated with the, with the outcomes from the intercrops and how every year is so different. Lots of people want to know like, which one's better or which one does better. And I mean, it's just like every year is different. It really depends on the year. And you know, one thing with you have two crops out there, if there's something that's really hard on one crop, like for instance, flea beetles on your brassica, you've still got the other crop out there. Right, right. So, I mean, ideally they both do well, but a lot of times during, you know, with conditions, at least you have two chances instead of one out there of something <laughs> succeeding. And the other benefit with the flea beetles too is the peas confuse because the flea beetles, like they sense like kind of the multiple ways and, and the peas that are in there actually can kind of confuse them. Okay. Right, so then like a pure brassica stand at your neighbor's looks way more appealing than this somewhat confusing mixture of they don't know what. Okay. So yeah, there's, there's that's that and coupled with, with soil cover because Flea beetles love like canola on bare ground. That's flea beetle heaven. Right. So we give them kind of the opposite of that. 
Interesting. Okay. And I guess like I read some, I think it was some research from the University of Manitoba. Like sometimes you can get some overyielding too, right? That you're actually out competing like a monocrop in some cases, right? Yeah, I know that there's, there's a lot of talk about overyielding. I like to think in terms of gross margin. I think that the soil health movement and regenerative ag movement would move faster if farmers would caught, stop talking in terms of yield and talk in terms of gross margin. That's a fair point. Yeah. Because that's. But it's not as sexy at the coffee shop. <laughs> that's one thing, especially once we started intercropping. Yeah, you go to town for coffee and everyone's talking yields, but you can't compare when you have an intercrop because it's a totally different, right. you know, it doesn't compare to everyone else. Yeah, so. it's, it's not relative, you know, but gross margin is, you know. Yeah, we, you could talk that. And when we take $100 worth of fertilizer, you know, and significant amount of seed costs out, of the calculation, you know, we're $100 ahead to start with. So it's one thing I've always argued is part of the reason that we like the reduced input is I don't have to get that back. Like every dollar you put in for whatever reason, you need to get that back. The first thing you need to do is get that back. Yeah. And then you get the profit. So we, we just don't put it in. Right, right. It allows you to reduce your risk, basically. Okay. You know, and we've been doing like, so we do sap analysis, which actually looks at what the plants take from the soil. It's different than soil testing. Like this is, you know, this is really what the plants are taking from the soil. We've been doing that for seven years. Um, we look at all the major nutrients, micronutrients. We're getting pretty balanced. Okay. Nitrogen is not the driving factor that you think it is. Like we reduce our nitrogen significantly in our our ammonium and nitrate levels in our plants are generally in the luxury end of things, so we could be doing less, huh. which is interesting. Two other regenerative agriculture producers we're going to meet towards the end of this series. So Craig Cameron and his father-in-law, Peter. Peter, I tried to pronounce your last name, and I was just having a heck of a time, but I swear by the time we get to your episode, I will know how to pronounce your last name properly. Uh, now, Craig and Peter, they live in a place called Lacombe. It's in Alberta. They also noticed because of the data they collected through their sap analysis that they could also reduce their use of fertilizer. This is a great thing for two reasons. One, it's going to save them money. So if they don't need that much fertilizer, they don't have to buy that much fertilizer. Second reason it's good is fertilizer, or rather the overuse or improper use of fertilizer, can result in the release of nitrous oxide into the atmosphere which is a greenhouse gas more potent than methane and about 265 times more powerful than carbon dioxide in terms of global warming potential. The Axtons also said something about keeping the soil covered during that part of the interview. Keeping the soil covered is one of the 10 guiding principles to regenerative agriculture that we're going to learn about through the Stories of Regeneration series. Covering the soil doesn't mean going out there at night and putting a blanket over a field to cover it up. It means using plant matter, whether it's living or dying, to provide soil with armor against the elements, like wind or the sun. Cover crops are a really good example of building soil armor. Protecting the soil like this allows for favorable conditions for soil microorganisms to thrive. It helps regulate soil temperature, build soil organic matter, and retain soil moisture. Covering the soil is extremely important given where Axton Farms is situated. 
Remember, with regenerative agriculture, understanding the context you're farming in or you're ranching in is everything. We're in the, the Missouri Coteau watershed, which is a unique part of southern Saskatchewan. It's very near the U.S. border, and our, you know, in theory, our, our water would go into the Missouri River, where most of Canada goes into Hudson Bay. So uh, we're situated just west of the Big Muddy Valley, the Big Muddy Badlands, and um, so our farm literally, we farm up against where they stop breaking land to farm, it's like for, for like. From our yard, 40 miles west, it's all native prairie, like untouched native prairie. Oh, wow. Because of topography mostly. Okay. You know, just extreme hills and rocks and unfarmable. And we're also in a bit of a low rainfall zone. Uh, I always I tell folks we, we live in like a very fragile area. Um, probably a lot of the reason of why we started making the changes is because we were, you know, trying to do everything we could to preserve moisture. That was sort of the original train of thought. Right. Anything you want to add to that, Tennis? No, that's pretty much covers it. I mean, yeah, we are, we consider our soils fragile. Okay. And like Derek said, that's why we've made most of the changes we've made. When we've went and seen a lot of people talk about why they've made changes on their farm, right. it was because they had to. Yeah. And we really wanted to make changes before we were backed into that corner and wanted to quit going backwards and start moving forwards. Okay. Um, I'm sort of jumping 10 questions ahead here, but I'll just, I'm thinking that some people listening might not understand the concept that soil could be fragile. So when you say the soil is fragile out here, what do you mean by that? Well, so I guess if you think about it, I mean, people think about topsoil. I mean, that's the part that covers the part we see right, and the part we walk on. But for us, our, our, our topsoil is quite thin. And our, you know, in relative terms, speaking to other parts of the country, our, our organic matter is relatively low you know and then couple that with low rainfall so it's you know there's there's a lot of things you know and then and then add 80 years of bad decisions on top of that you know and not not to take away from our ancestors I mean they were doing the best with what they had and the best of their knowledge and the best of their ability at the time but you know we've now learned that you know tillage is, is a massively destructive process and you know tillage plus time is bad right and then, so we've we were starting, you know, with, with you know severely degraded resource. Yeah, I'd say it's very susceptible to erosion, okay. whether it's wind or rain. It's hey, just very you susceptible. Got, you yeah. folks got some wind out here. Jeez, yes, yeah. powerful. Yes. After a growing season like the growing season of 2023, you can understand why Tannis and Derek do everything possible to hold on to soil moisture. So we 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 experienced a significant growth in the farm this year as well. So we took on a significant like we grew about 45 percent this year which was a lot and um couple that with i'm fairly confident the driest growing season that i've experienced in my career wow um we used to talk about 2017 but this now eclipses that by quite a margin um we're kind of in the 25 millimeters and it's a, it's a very large area yeah, yeah so it's not it's not you know it's not specific to us we are noticing differences between the, the interesting thing is having bought this other land that it gives us some context and um, for us to be able to see how you know our practices are responding on on that land obviously fairly new this year but 
and then just to see the kind of the resilience we've built on our own farm. Mm. I don't think we would have noticed it as much. I think we just would have been sad it was dry. But to be able to see, because I don't spend a lot of time in my neighbor's field, I don't do that. It is interesting to, to see the difference between what we've got at home and what we've been working on for nearly 20 years now. And time goes by fairly fast, but it's, it's, been, it's good to see. That's probably, that's the bright spot in this dry year. Up next, the accidents provide additional information as to why they keep their soil covered and how they go about doing it. Well, basically, a lot of guys explain it as, you know, it's kind of soil is the skin, right? It's your basis. And it's just when you go outside or you go in the sun, you want it to be protected, right? So for us, like I said, we have very fragile soils and keeping it covered is what prevents us from eroding. Okay. Um, whether it's a live root holding structure or just even residue on the top, whether it's a rainfall event. You know, we feel rain, it feels nice, but when you think of the size of a raindrop on a teeny tiny microorganism, <laughs> that's a huge impact, right? Very true. Whereas yeah. if you have some soil cover to help absorb that impact, it's not going to erode, erode your soil the same. And we've seen a big difference in that. We used to, because a lot of our rain in the summer will come, thunderstorm, a lot of rain fast. And then you go out to your field and you see these paths where the water has run. Right. Well, when you're trying to conserve water, that's the last thing you want to see. <laughs> so even now, first thing, as soon as it's raining, before it's even quite done, Derek will drive out because he needs to see, did the water move or did it go in? Cut. And when you have ground cover to help absorb that and infiltrate it and... You know, there's more to that, making sure your soils are healthy and you've taken care of them and that water goes in, then it's not running and eroding your soil. And same with wind. I mean, if you have something on the soil covering it, protecting it, your soil isn't blowing away. And the other thing is temperature, right? On, you know, today was 32 degrees and windy. If you take the temperature you know, of the residue on top of the soil versus pulling that aside and bare soil, Yeah. the temperature can fluctuate 10 to 20 degrees. Okay. Like it's, it's why is that huge. an issue? Well, a lot of it comes down to your evaporation or what would you say? Well, yeah, I mean, lots of that, like, you know, obviously keeping your soil covered to keep your water in place, and, and, but like there's, there's soil temperatures can reach like where it starts to affect soil life. Uh, it gets warm uh, enough. That biology it'll actually, piece, right? It'll yeah. actually kill soil life, okay. you know. So we keep in, we think in terms of moisture conservation because of where we live. Um, but there's places that keep their soil covered simply to stop the impact of rainfall. Uh. You know, to help and to help with infiltration and and to reduce the erosion because they get so much rain. It's it's an interesting tool that that's pretty universal. Um, and then obviously to insulate the, the, the there again, the inter, insulate the soil like in the winter so your soils don't freeze as much and your biology can stay active. Right. Because, you know, you hear, you hear stories of places where, where the, like really active biology, the guys, the, the snow doesn't stay on the field as long. And those like significant differences. Huh. You know, and it's, I mean, it's, it's the home, right? So, you know, you just got to keep it covered, basically. I mean, if you want highly active, you know, well-aggregated, you know, act, biologically active soils, they're going to be covered, you know, so. Okay. Yeah, that's, once again, that shift of mindset. And if you're thinking of 
soil is a home for your biology, right. well, of course, you don't want that exposed so it can be destroyed. You want to keep it covered and safe. Okay, well, definitely makes sense. And um, like, there might be a little bit of overlap from the practices we were talking about a little bit earlier, but can you talk about like some of the practices you use to keep that soil covered? Yeah, well, the first one, the low disturbance seeding. I kind of compare it to, especially on a gardening, gardening comparison, it's like using a pizza cutter to make a place to put your seed okay. versus a hoe. Right. Right, you have a lot less soil disturbance. Um, you're keeping that residue on the soil and you're not destroying what soil life or soil aggregation you already have. Yeah, so that's basically what happened when we seed. We just, it, even if there's residue on the ground, it just cuts it mm-hmm. clean. You know, it's like doing surgery. It just cuts it clean, places the seed in, pulls it back together. You don't even know we were there. You know, and, and it's with that, we pair with this these stripper heads that leave the residue very tall and very long. Right. Um, I mean, there's some efficiency things to be said about the harvest process, but for us, it's about, you know, the, the wind and the snow catch and, you know, the microclimate effect. I don't know if you've ever been out in like a tall grass field and you're walking across a meadow, you know, and it, maybe it's hot, but if you ever crouch down into the tall grass, how much cooler it can feel. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. This is, it's a very similar thing that we're doing. Like, so it's, you're, you're creating a microclimate down there that, is beneficial for plant growth, especially in a dry climate. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we got to keep soil covered. We got the minimum disturbance. We've got like uh, leaving quite a bit of residue. Anything else for keeping the soil covered? Well, growing a lot of high carbon crops so that you have oh. that residue left after you harvest. You know, like some of the, a lot of the legumes and, you know, different things that aren't as high in carbon after you harvest, it doesn't leave a lot on the soil. Okay. So that's where even the intercropping, keeping a pulse with something that's higher carbon, for instance, are chickpeas and flax. Mm. You know, after we harvest, we still have that, that flax stubble that allows us more carbon and leave a little bit of cover on the field. Okay. Yeah, and then, you know, and then we use cover crops when we can. You know, it's unfortunately it's not a it's not a three sixty five reality here. <laughs> uh, years like this, I'm assuming we're not going to get a lot planted unless things change. But I mean, right now, I mean, we're four inches to moisture from surface, and there's just no way we can establish a cover crop. Okay. Um, not that we don't want to, but we've learned from time and from mistakes to you can't force it. Um, Sometimes you go out there and you try to seed and you end up doing more damage and you're doing good. So sometimes the best thing to do is nothing, which can be difficult at times when you want to do better. But that's that's the other big one. Like cover crops is a big part of the puzzle, you know, when, when we can. Right. We don't quite have the heat units out here in the fall to do like a fall cover crop or anything like that. Oh, you? no, we do piles oh, of fall. Oh, okay, yeah, 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 okay, yeah. Yeah. No, that's what I'm talking about. Oh, it's like, sorry. Okay, right, right. So, like we, we would start harvesting here. We'll start harvesting probably two weeks. Okay. Um, and we'll seed covers. If there's moisture, we'll seed covers till well into September. You know, so all the way through August and oh, maybe wow. midway in September. Because you don't need, like, you know, if you get four, three or four inches of top growth, you get a tremendous amount of root growth and a tremendous amount of exudates. Because when, when plants are growing in their vegetative state is when the bulk of the root exudation into the soil happens, right? And that's what's feeding their biology. And that's right. what's making the whole thing crank. Okay. You know, and that's your, that's your labile carbon. That's, that, you know, 
that's your, your biological food, right? Okay. So that's why car, cover crops are so important. I think that's the kind of the thing a lot of folks miss is, is you know, that those are the important stages. So really, for us, even with a small window, if we can get that kind of growth for us, you'll see a noticeable difference in soil aggregation from that. It doesn't look like much driving by, but if you go out and like literally look at where the plants are growing and go somewhere where maybe the drill is missed or a different field, there's a there's a visual notice in soil aggregation. Mm, okay. And that and you know seeing that over time is what's been driving us to continue doing it. Like we don't seed cover crops because they're sexy, you know, or because it's cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, and you know exactly as, as difficult as that is to to disagree with. <laughs> but it's they make change and I, and you know people like lots of times i get asked like you know what's the one thing which i say there is no one thing right it's a system there's you know like everything but if if i could pick something it's it's more live root days all right like if i had to pick one thing it's more live root days okay yeah another like key principle to regen egg too right? yeah love this next part because the Axtons hit a handful of regenerative agriculture principles while talking about their regenerative agriculture practices. We'll point them out as they come up. So the, like the regenerative ag practices that, that we use predominantly on our farm obviously is, you know, low, disturb, low disturbance seeding. We talked about that. Minimize soil disturbance. Uh, then we use these um, stripper headers like on our combines. We basically just take the grain from the top and we leave our stubble stand. Sometimes it's four feet tall, five feet tall. Oh, wow. to keep it covered like catch snow we call it harvesting snow because our neighbors don't cut that low and it also reduces like you know wind speed right so then our evaporation loss and our transpiration losses are less protect the water cycle uh, and add shading and then when that stubble through the growing season falls down it then becomes cover you know long you know imagine what that's like it's like kind of putting mulch around your trees uh, we, we, we have a system, a traffic system in our farm where we just drive in the same place all the time. It's called control traffic. So we basically, it's to limit compaction. It's back to water infiltration and holding capacity. That's what we, why we do that. Um, we do integrate some livestock um, as much as possible. Integrate livestock. And we have a tremendous amount of diversity, I guess, because we grow normally 10 or 12 different crops. Some are inner crops, some companion crops. Um, we grow cover crops in the fall when moisture and time allow. Maintain biodiversity. You know, it's kind of back to the, you know, the the sixth principle or the first principle, like context. Um, I, I, I'm starting to become a believer in it being number one because it changes everything. You know, not, not, not everything works everywhere. And just because I'm in a giving mood, I'm going to throw in maintain a living root year round because with those cover crops, they are trying to maintain a living root for as long as possible. Yeah, because on all of them kind of lead back to our original... How can we conserve water in our soil? Okay. I mean, it wasn't until we learned more about the soil, why disturbing it less, having that living root, why does that all benefit? And it all comes down to the life in the soil. Mm. Because it's that biology we depend on to cycle our nutrients, build aggregates so that we can, you know, have a good soil that can hold a lot of water. Yeah. Whether in those rare instances that we get too much so that it can actually infiltrate and go into the soil or when we don't have much and it can hold what's left. Okay. I could add one, like, I guess just thinking about, like, when you think about disturbance, a lot of people think about physical disturbance, but we do include chemical disturbance in that. 
-hmm. you know, because it's, it, honestly, it's our main form of weed control and, you know, because we choose not to do tillage. And, you know, we, we've, we've invested tremendously in, in technology, really. That's sort of our, our, our way to, re to reduce our impact, you know, where we, we do this, like, it's called variable rate, where we, we just put things where they belong, basically, because we're in a very um, challenging terrain, I would call it, where we have huge differences in organic matter from our low spots to our hilltops. So this variable rate technology allows us to put things where they should be, and sometimes not at all. Okay. Right? Um, and also that with our herbicides, and, and then we've also invested in a, some spray technology that's come out of Europe that um, I think will become common practice in Western Canada, but it, it allows us just to spray where the weeds are. So it's allowed us to reduce our herbicide like more than I expected was possible, you know, like 70, 80%. That's wild. Yeah. So that's, you know, I always kind of liken it to uh, an organic farm becoming no-till. To me, this is like, it, that was a huge leap for us to be able to get, because we don't want to be using herbicides. I mean, it's just a, it's a tool mm. like, you know, like no, like lotus herbicide seeding or like livestock or diversity. They're all, they're all just tools and it's a matter of how we use them. And some tools you want to use less. Totally, yeah. I just don't know how anybody or how you could do no-till without a bit of spray like that. I, maybe some people can. It just seems like there's parts a tough of, one to do. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Like there's parts where like, like Rick Clark in in Central Indiana is is doing a really good job of that. But I mean, it's he has a. I mean, the the, the stars kind of have to align for you, like rainfall, climate. You know, where there's a very small portion of the United States. That, where that works successfully. Interesting. Okay. And when the guys are doing it and are in those areas, they're doing a really good job. But you need, you need a, lot of, a lot of moisture and a lot of growing season, you know, and some ingenuity to do that. Alright. Interesting. I just, my laptop battery is dying on me for some reason. I don't know if I'm... Think, so there is one, yep, behind that chair. I don't know what's plugged in, but you can probably unplug it. Uh, you think it's plugged into this one? Is the outlet not working or? Oh, cause oh, it's a switch. Oh shoot, yeah, there's a switch that turns it off and on, sorry. Uh, okay. No, 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 good. Oh, I see that is you plugged in there. Oh, that. Think, yep, we're good. Yeah, sorry. No, it's all good. I used to have that tape, someone turned it off and I see the tape's <laughs> off. No, it's all good. Uh, where are we at here? Hey, oh. practices. Yeah, um, yeah. Just before we jump to six, there um, with inputs though, like oh. the inputs you're using are organic, right? Or mostly, or because I, th I thought for some reason I thought there was compost involved. Yeah, a lot of we do use a little bit of synthetic fertilizer, okay. but the majority is we use, we've used compost extracts. We spread a bit of compost. Um, but it's seeding. We use a lot of biological foods and micronutrients, and that makes up the bulk of our fertility program. Okay, okay. So our, our seed starter, like the liquid that goes in with our seed, when we you know we're, we're you know most farms use like you know FOSS or MESED or you know a granular fertilizer. We what we use looks very organic. I mean it's yeah like Tana said biological foods and you know in terms of like greenhouse gas reduction, it's it's interesting because. Some friends of ours that farm in a very similar way in Australia were, were involved in a, in a study that, that measured carbon output per ton of grain. Okay. And in, in wheat, in, in the area that was studied, so a similar growing system to ours, but obviously they do it in their winters and we do it in our summers, but in their area, the average carbon equivalent per ton of grain was 350 to 500 
um, kilograms per ton of grain. So it, it's pretty relative because it's per ton of grain. And the guys that use basically the exact same method of production that we do, like inputs, herbicide reduction, crop rotations, were they average 17. Wow. Per ton of grain. Okay. So 20x plus. Yeah. Bulk of that's fertilizer. Interesting. Okay. So, and then that, that so that that study's actually been released. It's in. It's out for peer review now. Okay. And that should be peer reviewed soon. And there's a tremendous difference in production styles. So you don't necessarily need to be a high fertilizer user to feed the world. Not an issue that we plan on tackling in this podcast series, but I feel I should point out that one of the reasons or points of contention in the conversation around transitioning to a more regenerative or climate-friendly food system is that by 2050, we'll need to feed an additional 2 billion people globally. The underlying assumption here is we need to do whatever it takes, even if it's at the expense of the environment, to produce more and more food. But, and I feel I do need to add this, it's also important to recognize that agriculture products aren't just food right now. They're also fuels, fiber, and medicine. Reprioritizing which agriculture products we want to produce and in what volume likely needs to be a part of the how are we going to feed more people conversation. And I also want to add an anecdote from an agriculture producer in Alberta. Uh, This producer told me years back, so around the time Rural Roots got started in 2017, 2018, uh, what the producer said was we need to stop telling farmers and ranchers that they need to feed the world because it's putting too much pressure on them. Instead, we need to tell them, or maybe we should ask them, to feed their communities. Nitrous oxide, which can be released into the atmosphere when synthetic or organic fertilizers are not consumed by that vast biological community that lives in the soil, is a powerful greenhouse gas, as I already mentioned. The whole idea behind variable rate fertilizer application is to avoid putting on too much or too little fertilizer on a field. Variable rate determines the right amount of fertilizer to apply on different areas of a field. You know, the practices are one thing, but before we could get there, it was the mind shift. Mm. And like Derek said, like so focused on the crop and never on the soil. So we really, you know, we had grown up on farms. You know, we thought we knew a lot about farming and it felt like the more we learned, the less we knew. Huh. And we hadn't focused on the soil at all. And which basically the regenerative practices focus on the soil and... Yeah, to see, you know, once I got a microscope and started looking at the soil and took Dr. Elaine Ingham's Life in the Soils courses and it was just, it was eye-opening. And yeah, it changed the way we thought about soil and came up with our farm motto of loyal to the soil. So, <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. And like yeah, that, so, man. you know, it just made it so that every operation we do on a farm, we just, we really consider how will this affect the soil and the life that lives in it. Okay. Is farming with a regenerative mindset more than just farming? Like, is there other aspects to it that, like, you know, we talked about the seed cleaning plant, plant, the flour mill, which it's related to agriculture, but it's not exactly like a practice itself. So sometimes is regenerative agriculture about more than agriculture sometimes? 
I think so. I mean, I, I think it's about, it is about feeding people, but it, it's about actually feeding people, you know, and it, and maybe it's our community or maybe it's our general area or, or, you know, maybe it'll go halfway across the United States. I mean, I think locals is a interesting but relative term. And if we can use those opportunities uh, to, to help put people in our, you know, in our community and, and on our farm, I always think that when we, we export grain that hasn't been processed or value added, that we're exporting potential on so many levels mm. that can be kept at home. But that potential is going to some other community or some other town or some other country who is capturing that potential. Right. And we can be doing it here. And I, I think that's, you know, that's the mindset of lots of successful businesses. And we're just going to slowly pick away at making that happen here. <laughs> well, and one of the fun things about the regenerative movement is finding other like-minded people. Um, we have made some of our best friends in other countries throughout the world. I guess that's one that comes back to context, you know, doing totally different things, but having a lot of the same principles. And, you know, from people in the States going to a conference, people that you've only, you know, connected with on Twitter, picking you up at the airport. And, you know, some of the nicest, most genuine people we've met in these circles. Well, that's great to hear. Yeah, no, it's... It's really amazing, actually. Yeah. No, and it's, and I don't know how this, if this fits, but I mean, it's, it's interesting how, like, our kids were raised in a unique environment where there's, there's not a lot of us, right? But our kids were raised in this environment. And I really think, like, they kind of have a leg up because it's like they're a step ahead, you know, they're, they're one staircase farther or however you want to, whatever metaphor you want to use, but they're thinking different already. They don't have to get here. They're already there. Mm. And so it's, it's like, now what's next? Right. Yeah, that's exciting to see what our kids come up with. Because for, you know, this is all new to us, but our kids have grown up with this. So right. regenerative agriculture is the norm for them. You know, like I tell this story, we both grew up, you know, tilling land and, you know, summer following. It's, it was fun. It was what we did. And if you drove by that field, it just looked nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then we travel with our kids. And I remember our son was young. Look out the window and there's this tilled field. And he's like, Dad, can, did you see that? It's horrible. Like, what was that guy thinking? <laughs> so it's totally, you know, once again, that mind shift. And to him, he couldn't imagine why anyone would do that to their soil. That's fascinating. Whereas we grew yeah. up not knowing any different. One thing I noticed when I re-listened to the interviews with the Axtons and Ryan Boyd, so the agriculture producer from Manitoba, we heard from in part one. One thing I noticed was that both farms modeled their management practices after the wild landscapes that exist or once existed in their local context. Um, yeah, okay, let's talk about benefits of your practices. Like I'm assuming you're not doing all this stuff just because it's fun. So what, what are some of the on-farm benefits of your regen ag practices? I guess the biggest benefit we've seen simply has been increase in resiliency. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that's the easiest way to say it is that, you know, just like there is no one, there is no one thing that you can do. I don't think that outweighs others. Like, well, I guess I've kind of already said that, but it's not, there's no silver bullet. Right. right? And there's no one thing that we see that's better, but 
resiliency encompasses all of that. You know, we, we have better water infiltration, we have better aggregate stability, we better have, have better holding capacity, or we buffer temperatures better, right? We, all of those, those are all the things. The sum of the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. There you go. You know, and it's, it's, it's real. It's taking some time though. This, this is not a quick turnaround process. Okay. We've been at this for almost 20 years and we got a long way to go. I honestly think it's only been in the last few years we've noticed improvement. Huh. So. It's interesting because the last few years have been so dry too. Uh. And maybe that's, that's some of it, but it's, um, I think farmers are hugely visual. A lot of people are, right? Like, like they respond to visual change, you know, and, you know, this, I love the color of that car, you know, and, yeah. and, I, and, and I, I think that farmers like doing tillers because they can see they did something. I did this and now it looks like that, right? So, um, regen eggs not like that. Sometimes it's messier, right? Sometimes there's more weeds and um, I know the soil cover drives, you know, what it looks like when there's strips double its funny heights and things, it just, it's not tidy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but nature really isn't either, so. I think it's, you know, because really that's that's been that's been the teacher for us. I mean, that's something I and I should have talked about earlier. Is that that's probably one of the first things that Doctor Beck told me in two thousand six was I shouldn't say he told me he asked me about my he had never been here, but his wife is Canadian and he asked me about my like what's the need of vegetation in your area, huh. and that's like that's the blueprint. What's the need of vegetation? You know, so we're we're short grass prairie. We're 125 species, give or take, in our native prairie in the area. Oh, wow. You know, it's it's 60 or 70 percent high carbon crops, okay. right? Grasses, 15 percent are probably warm season. There's probably 15 percent legumes, and the balance will be forbs. Okay. There's the blueprint for your crop rotation, and that's honestly what we've been trying to do. Okay. So. Yeah, um, the whole mimic nature concept mm-hmm. you know obviously we're not neat you know because we're removing and there's things yeah. we're doing but i mean that's you know i think that's a pretty good blueprint to follow because you know thousands of years proves that that functions without you know without Any us outside inputs yeah yeah just a bunch of bison at one point probably yeah that's it. Yeah, yeah you know relatively little removal but you know still removal over time right i mean it's it's funny how we can get hung up on our you know time you know, we've really been doing this for a hundred years, right? <laughs> so, you know, I don't know how many zeros we need to add uh, yeah. to what it was prior to us showing up here with our plows and our good ideas. Yeah, right. Um, so, you know, we've got a lot to learn. That's, the, the, like Tana said earlier, it's every year goes by, I realize I know less. <laughs> and it's awfully humbling. Well, and change is slow, right? Uh, we kind of compare it to, you know, your kids. You feel like... Just yesterday they were a baby and now they're graduated from high school. Right. And sometimes we don't always notice the changes in our soil till like when we've bought this new farm and we're looking at the soil and we're like, this isn't what our soil looks like. Like you, you forget, you forget how much things have changed until you have something to compare it to. Building off of what Tanis mentioned there about change being slow, regenerative agriculture is by no means the system of agriculture that's the norm or mainstream in Canada. 
Regenerative agriculture practitioners are definitely in the minority. However, over the last five years of doing this podcast, I have to admit I've definitely seen it grow in adoption and popularity. The one thing organizations like Rural Roots to Climate Solutions or, or even Regeneration Canada work pretty hard on is figuring out how to accelerate adoption rates of regenerative agriculture. So it goes from something that's practiced by a few producers to something that's practiced by many. When I asked the Axtons why they farm regeneratively, they also provided some insights as to what we can do as a society to ignite widespread adoption of regenerative agriculture. I still would like to know, like, why are you doing this? Why do you care about regenerative agriculture? I like the long game. It's always been kind of my thing. And I, I just think regenerative agriculture is a long game. Payoffs will be better. And building resiliency is insurance in many ways. And it's made it fun, which is as strange as it is to say, it's like, you know, once you start thinking in terms of sort of farming biologically, I guess it's kind of how I think of it really. It's like, I just don't think we even understand the potential of the soil if we get out of the way. Mm. And I think that's, that's the exciting thing. It's like the things that happen and the, the improvements we've seen and the productivity without the inputs while improving the resource is probably been the most fun thing to watch for me. Doing less than getting more and improving the resource. Okay. It's like the thing they told you you can't do. Like Tannis once she sent me a picture of this t-shirt and it was like, spite, it's what motivates me. <laughs> it's like, just... Tell me again, I can't do that. <laughs> and it's it's sort of true. I mean, it's we're doing things that I was taught in college that we can't do. You can't oh, yeah. change your organic matter. You can't change your soil type. You can't build soil. You can't build soil in a lifetime. Hmm. You know? Surprise, surprise, though. Yeah. Well, just like, you know, we've got friends you, you can't rotationally graze on native pasture. You know? friends doing that I mean it's it's kind of exciting right I mean it's um and once you kind of clear your mind and and just it's a it's a bit of a process of unlearning unfortunately mm -hmm. um but once you kind of get over that and it's uh the potential is kind of unlimited I think right anything to add to this? no I think he covered it yeah. <laughs> my brain's shutting down no I don't blame you <laughs> As far as like anything else that needs to be said that we haven't talked about, and I've maybe touched on it a couple of times, is is sort of the differences between organic agriculture and regenerative agriculture. And mm. um, we have some really good friends that are organic farmers, and and I I sort of hesitate to say this, but I, I strongly believe that there's two types of organic producers. There's organic by intent and organic by neglect. And I think the friends of ours and the people that we know who are involved in agric organic agriculture are organic by intent, yeah. but there's a significant portion who just stop buying stuff or quit doing stuff and they happen to be organic. And the problem is there again, just like what happened to us is the, the, all of those producers grain kind of gets lumped in the same pile. Uh, okay. Just like ours, like our grain used to get lumped in the same pile with the conventional guys. And it's, I think it's just strongly disappointing for everyone because uh. we're all trying to do better. And I think like, a lot of our organic friends are trying to get to be more regenerative, and some have even entered into a, a, like a ROC. 
right? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're making tremendous efforts to, to do better and reduce tillage and reduce their disturbance, which is different. And there's some that are just there for the, you know, mm. higher value of crop. You know, I've even asked some of them, like, if, if organic and conventional grain was the same price, would you still be organic? Well, no. <laughs> there's your answer. There it is. You know, so, um, you know, I, and, it's, and, it's, and it's confusing, I think, for consumers. You know, and, and uh, I mean, organic is out of the ROC, and there's going to be some some regenerative certifications coming to market very soon. And I, and I can see how it's, it is a bit muddy for them. Um, I do think, though, that as regenerative certification rolls out, it's it's just so strict in terms of continuous improvement that you can't be a shitty farmer and be there. Okay. It's just there aren't those people. That's going to be the difference. Is you've got to you know you kind of got to be all in you know on on many levels to to be there. And I think that's what's gonna that's what's gonna sort of you know move the needle. For us, it's been learning that you just can't do what other people do. Derek, seen a lot of exciting things and a lot of exciting farms, but for one, we just can't grow corn here. And, you know, it took us a while trying to mimic what other people were doing before, you know, we realized this other principle of context. And you really got to know where you are, what environment you're dealing with, what works for you. It's not... You know, these principles are nice because they're fairly general, mm. but the context and looking at what you're dealing with makes all the difference. Mm. We made the grievous error multiple times of trying to bring home someone else's production system and transplant it into poor dry little Minton. <laughs> you know, and it just, it took us a while to understand it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's practices or it's, it's, you got to think in more general terms and specifics, and we were really bad for trying to bring specifics home. Mm -hmm. You know, so for, like honestly, for me, like I, th I think now I, I put context first because I, I think the other ones don't matter if you if you don't not that they don't matter, but I, I think they it makes more sense to have context as number one, and then everything else you know falls in according because maybe you live somewhere where you know maybe gra grazing is. Tremendously difficult, and and I've been on farms like uh, David Brant's in Ohio, for example. Okay, you know where he built, he changed his soil classification. Wow, without livestock, you know, you know livestock Im improves and in, in, increases the speed, but I don't know if it's necessarily one hundred percent necessary. Okay, you know, and sometimes it just isn't, you know, context relevant. Right. Yeah, it's not just doing it to do the principle, but understanding why, mm. why you're doing it. Not just so you can say you're doing it, but why, you know, what is the purpose? What is the outcome? What's actually going to work? Yeah, I think that's a lot of it. And I don't know how that filters through, but it's amazing how many people we've had come to field days or phone or come on a private farm tour. And they're like, well, we're doing this and we're, we're doing the principles and it's not getting better. And we don't know why. And, you know, well, you're still like, you're still using 100%, you know, you haven't changed your fertilizer and you haven't changed your crop matrix and you haven't changed, you know, like, that's kind of what goes back to my, there is no silver bullet, right? I mean, it's like, 
learning to think holistically, not that I'm holistic really, but learning to think sort of in that context, right, is helps a lot. And that's kind of why I think that context is surprisingly important. You know, your, your rainfall zone, your soil types, your access to livestock, your access to pasture, your access to neighbors who want to bring you livestock. Right. Yeah, actually, that's one thing I was wondering if, like, because a lot of the context we just talked about is, like, ecological and environmental, but, like, what about the social context of the farm? Like, is that something you also need to consider when you're, I don't know, deciding what to do or making decisions or just, like, society as a whole? Like, what society is willing to buy? What society is willing to put up with? What society wants for you? Because clearly we're asking a lot from producers these days. We're not just asking for food. Yeah, that's that's a really big question, but I think there's there's a lot to that. Um, this isn't for people who really truly care what other people think, and you know, unfortunately, there's some of those people. Like, I think that the adoption of regenerative practices is largely stymied by social pressure. Mm. I've said that lots. Okay. I think that's a, I truly believe in that. Back to money. Mm. Now, but if we pay people, I think that goes away. Okay. You know, if people are doing it, you know, if unfortunately people are doing it sort of for the, you know, the environmental, you know, resiliency side of it right now, right. there's like, there's a lot of social pressure around that okay. part of it. But if you pay farmers, like I'm, I'm just thinking like in a, so, in a farmer social community yeah. context right now. Gotcha. Why guys, like, I don't want to do this because my neighbors are not going to invite me to the Christmas party. And trust me, this shit happens. I don't believe it. But if it's, if it's done from a financial gain and the benefits happen to be regenerative agriculture or the outcomes, that's a completely different thing. And I, I, don't, I don't know if people say money is the root of all evil, but it can also usher in change. Mm. Motivate motivate you know for the right reasons you know obviously but i think if it's all done appropriately and, and you know in, in value of it's i, I think it's, it really makes sense because i you know I, I'm, I'm a member of a peer group and um i'm, I'm actually the only Canadian member but a, a bunch of the guys it's funny like you'd think that we're all a bunch of and there's a few of us soil health guys that were like doing this before it was regenerative. But the bulk of the guys that joined the group are soil butchers. Huh. And they come in simply on financial reasons. Okay. The, the guy that facilitates our group just basically shows them how you make more money and regenerative agriculture is the side benefit. Mm. So it's funny. And then once they see it, and once they realize that they're doing regenerative agriculture, even though they... <laughs> you can, yeah, save money and improve your resource it's, then it's, guys buy into it and honestly it's almost like it's almost like ex-smokers are like you know they're they're the worst right they're the, <laughs> i know i'm trying to use an example i know that it's like once they realize they're like holy crap like this is this is way better yeah, yeah. then like these guys are committed right it's like my soil's getting better I'm making more money kicking ass and taking names right, right. those guys are like just clear out of the way Okay. Because generally they're really good managers, and that, that's why they see it. They see the financial difference. Okay. Exciting times, Ed. For sure. I'm going to ask one follow-up question, then I swear to God I'll let you go to bed. <laughs> um, just that, because uh, this has come up a few times on the podcast, like the, the 
coffee shop or the coffee shop in town being one of the biggest obstacles to like accelerating agricultural climate solutions or regenerative agriculture like any theories or thoughts like where that social pressure comes from like that resistance to change like we had one guy say is like listen if you're going to do regen egg you got to accept everybody's going to think you're the village idiot for the next two to three years or it's going to be a hard road for you you know yeah well i think people are scared of anything different right and we love to judge each other and if someone isn't doing what you're doing i think it scares them and if you don't understand something yeah this is a lot of judgment so Mm. you don't always know what people are saying but yeah we noticed a lot of change you know people don't talk to you as much about different things Mm. it's amazing we've held numerous field days here and very few neighbors show up oh really i don't completely agree with the judgment stuff as much i i think it's as simple it's it's like you're friends with people you have common interests with yep right and you get together and you talk about your common interests exactly and that's what we normally do when we're farmers right and our common interest is like like it's a disease like it's that's all we do we we farm and then we get together and we drink beer and we talk about farming (laughs) right that's what we're doing right now yeah exactly so um and with our friends when they're like well now they farm weird it's like i don't know you know it just then it becomes awkward it's like i don't know if we're gonna talk like I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to hear about the bullshit compost. And I don't, you know, so I think, and then once they realize that it's like, it really isn't that different. And we went through this sort of evolution of, of that in our community. And, and now it's like, we're now we're just kind of those people. And we still, we have a lot more in common than you think we do, but we have some differences, but we just don't talk about that part. But then we get into tough years like this. And then sometimes the questions start to come up, hmm. you know, what, what about this or what about that? You know, obviously not stuff that they'll ask you in person in front of the rest of the farmers <laughs> at the local coffee emporium. But um, you get some text messages and somebody will phone in. You know, and it's just it's just funny what happens to be that one thing that turns somebody on to like, maybe I should try something different. And, and it, honestly, it's, it's a hell of a lot easier when there's somebody else in the area already doing it. Mm. Right? So I think the... I think the change is coming. I think, um, unfortunately, it's years like this that kind of define, define you know, some of these defining moments, really what ignites the fire of change in people. Well, yeah, changing because they have to. Yeah. You know, the choice isn't there anymore either. You know, they can't afford the increasing fertilizer prices. Or they notice that this increased fertilizer isn't increasing the profitability of their mm. crop. Yeah, people change. Some wait till they have to. Right. And I think that's when a lot of people will make changes. Yeah. Yeah, you kind of hope it would be simpler than that. Because like, you I don't want people so. to hit rock bottom just no. to, to change. But that, it's often the case. That's the thing. Yeah. Well, I guess what makes us all unique, right, is the freedom to choose how we how we do it. And I mean, it's, and we've never said that, like, I'll never tell someone else to farm. I think there's always going to be a place for all types of agriculture. Okay. You know, and I, I don't want to, I'm not a prescriptive guy. You know, when I go talk to a crowd, I'm not here to tell people how to farm. I'm just here to give examples of what I've experienced. Mm-hmm. And some things are better than others, but this is where we're at. I think Tannis and I and the family are all in a better place because of it. And uh, we like to share a story, so. I well, appreciate you sharing stories for the last two hours with me. <laughs> I apologize. It, it took been, so it really? long. 
Thanks for tuning in to part two of Stories of Regeneration. Be sure to download and listen to part three with another regenerative agriculture legend, Blake Vince of Merlin, Ontario. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based organization empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. Rural Roots runs workshops, farm field days, webinars, and participant-driven projects like the Six Tippy Agriculture Project and the Regenerative Agriculture Lab. We produce a farmer's blog, and of course, we do this podcast. For more information about us and what we do, go to the website, which is www.rr2cs.ca. The rest of the amazing and talented Rural Roots to Climate Solutions team is Cheyenne Younger, Kristen Mountain, Shelley Seed, Lance Tailfeathers, Susan Solway, and Aiden Grind. The podcast is funded by a variety of Alberta-based funders and some funders who are based in other parts of Canada. The Stories of Regeneration project is primarily funded by Agriculture and Agri-Foods Canada. The project is led by Regeneration Canada, a fantastic not-for-profit organization that advocates for soil health to mitigate climate change and guarantee a healthy food system. It's an organization that Rural Roots is proud to partner with. For additional information, videos, blog posts, and digital materials about the agriculture producers featured throughout the series, visit regenerationcanada.org. A big shout out to Antonius, Sarah, Ali, and Paige from Regeneration Canada, and Jean-Marc, Bill, and Obed from the film crew, who all worked tirelessly to bring this project to life. The interview with the Axtons was recorded on Treaty 4 lands and in the Métis Nation Saskatchewan Western Region 3, My parts of this episode were recorded on Treaty 7 lands and in the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. Happy farming wherever you are in the world. And remember, what's good for the climate is good for the farmer.